Hello, and welcome to another episode of Setting the Tone, an ER Retrospective, the show where we do a chronological breakdown of every episode of our favorite TV medical drama. With me today, as always, are Lauren. Hello. And Daniel. Hi. Today we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 9, which is titled ER Confidential. The episode aired on Thursday, November 17th, 1994. Lauren, what was going on this week 25 years ago? Well, in some happy news... Interview with a Vampire is our number one movie this week, which is my absolute brand of trash. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it because it's Brad Pitt being peak early Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise being so extra. Please watch it if you haven't. On the other side of that coin, boys to men, still making love to our ears. It's not, we're not out of the woods yet, guys. And I want to look ahead to see when this madness will end. Why was America so in love with this song in 1994? When will I be free of this bit? Save me. And the day after this episode aired, we have Star Trek Generations premiering. And this is the one with uh, Patrick Stewart and William Shatner, for those of you who don't know. Yeah, and for those of you who do know, please go check out a semi-recent episode of The Popular Court where Jake and I went and did a kind of a a re-examination of Star Trek Generations, we thought maybe we weren't giving it a fair shake uh, by just dismissing it as shitty. And uh, no, it's still it's still pretty shitty. It's uh, it's kind of it's kind of marketed as like this, you know, epic Patrick Stewart and William Shatner, Picard and Kirk coming together and working, you know, as a team. And that comprises maybe like eight minutes of screen time in a two hour movie. And it is. Yeah, it's just underwhelming is probably the best way to describe it. Like it's not it has some okay parts, like but first contact comes out pretty shortly after this. Um I feel like that was maybe 96. Yeah, 96. I don't know. But yeah, that that's a much better movie. It's essentially re- the only really good TNG movie, but Star Trek Generations is just very meh. But uh the in terms of viewership uh for this week's episode, we're down just a little bit to twenty four point five million viewers. I mean, you know, pff, God, do Only. they even deserve to exist? Yeah. But uh twenty four point five million viewers, which I think I attribute to being around Thanksgiving. This is a very Thanksgiving centric episode. I don't think it aired on Thanksgiving itself. I could have very easily Googled this, but I didn't. It was the week before. Okay, so it was the week before Thanksgiving, so maybe that has something to do with it. Who knows? But, you know, this is just a very brief dip. They're going to jump right back up into those high 20s and even into the low 30s here very, very soon. This episode was directed by Paul Sackheim and written by Paul Manning. Daniel Sackheim is a director. He does more of the—he's like our director last week. Uh, He does more on the executive producing side these days versus actually directing. Uh, He does, like, ones and twos of a lot of stuff. For example, this is his only episode of ER that he ever directed. Most notably, recently, I mean, he's still directing, he's still producing. Uh, Most recently, though, he's done uh, four episodes of True Detective, seven episodes of The Americans, two episodes of Game of Thrones, and two episodes of Better Call Saul. They could have been two good episodes of Game of Thrones. But that entire series is pointless now. No, it's not. Just the last three seasons. So half the show. Anyway. Almost a third. <laughs> uh, that's another topic for another time. But yeah, he does a lot of like ones and twos of different streaming platform shows. Like I think I saw um, The Leftovers and Man in the High Castle, different 
Netflix, Amazon, whatnot, streaming shows. Um, but moving on. Before we get into the actual episode proper, I would like to put out a pretty big content warning for this one uh, for some transphobia and also for suicide. There will be an audio clip later in the episode that actually where someone does kill themselves. So please be aware that if that's triggering to you or distressing to you in any way, maybe give us a week and uh, listen next week instead and make sure you're taking care of yourself or re-listen to one of our older episodes. And next week should be a good one. It looks like it's a fun weather one. Oh yeah, I watched I watched ahead because it's one of my favorite episodes, and next week should be pretty unproblematic. But moving into this week's episode, we open with uh, Susan waking up in the rain. Uh, she's alone in her bed. Uh, she walks into the living room to find Div with a tape recorder, and I grabbed the audio clip because we're really starting, we're really circling the drain with Div. He's really bottoming out pretty hard. So let's give it a listen. Obsessional negative thoughts about work. The, uh, the hours, ludicrous staff meetings, the stink of the halls, and the patients. The patients. You find yourself searching for ways not to hate them. You know, little tricks like um, she shares a birthday with your mother, or he looks like the brother of a friend. doesn't work you feel nothing every drop of pleasure has drained from your life you can't sleep you can't think you can't concentrate trouble sleeping uh, uh, I was just catching up on some work Whew. Yeah, rough day, rough week, rough life lately for Div. And for as much as we've been shitting on him for our entire run, I think this really kind of helps us open our eyes to what he's actually been dealing with. Because if we think that what he's been trying to put on at work has been a quote-unquote brave face, then to imagine him coming home from work to this mindset night after night, it's no wonder the man's melting down. He's not asking for help. And he's not acknowledging in any real constructive way that he's going through something. Even after he's done with his little tape recorder and gets interrupted by Susan, he just immediately lies to her. And in the um, in this shot here with Susan kneeling in front of him and him sitting on the couch curled up in his PJs, it almost looks like a mother talking to a small child with the posture that he has. Yeah, he's sort of like curled up on the couch, like hunched over himself almost in a way, like almost like he's trying to like keep warm or something like that. Mm-hmm. He's wearing his like 50s jammies too, like he's got everything but the little hat. Like he's he looks like a very small child. I want those jammies. Oh no, they look cozy as fuck, don't get me wrong, but like it's, you know, just kind of adds to the whole thing. They are not warming his soul. Oh. Now well, I now feel, I'm bummed yeah, out. Yeah, now I feel sad. But then we go to the credits, which, once again, we open with a bang. Where are them tinkles, Daniel? S- seven to one. Look, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Where are them crinkle tinkles, my boy? We are going to get there, but seven to one for now. And then we cut right over to Mr. Doug, who is uh, getting ready 
which I, they didn't ever make it clear if we're at his place or hers, which I think actually, yes, they do. Cause he makes, he makes note that she's got a bunch of shit in his bathroom. So yeah, he looks a little disheveled and he seems a little bit uncomfortable with the degree to which she's kind of moving herself into his bathroom. And it is, I should have mentioned, it is the pharmaceutical rep, uh, Linda Farrell, who has been, I think we've established at this point that she is the least memorable semi-recurring character. We seem to forget about her existence from one episode to the next. I can't remember her name for the life of me. Even when we have it written down, I forget it. I know. Well, yeah, it's like she's been in every episode since she was introduced, even if it's just for like a brief second. And every time I'm always like, oh, fuck her again. Like, I just forget she exists. But Doug also kind of, I don't know if I have the quote exactly right here, but I did mark down in my notes that he he observes that it's stopped raining, which I thought was a nice little continuation of the weather theme. And, you know, he asks about his as I kind of alluded to earlier he he's like I'm just amazed how much women can fit in their overnight bags there and if you look at his counter his counter is covered in her makeup and like mirrors and all sorts of shit Um, and we find out that they're going on a vacation to Nassau in the Bahamas although for the first 10 minutes of this episode I definitely thought they were going to upstate New York but that's fine (laughs) and we also find out that she is paying for everything so Doug's got himself a little sugar mama and you can kind of see from his body language and his face that he's not really comfortable with the idea of her paying for everything but she kind of laughs it off and is like please we know you don't make anything you're a resident and a pediatric resident is that at that so kind of you know gives him a little smack down a little backhanded you know thing but you know it's just Doug seems very ill at ease with this relationship like he seems very half in half out like the playboy sort of juvenile part of Doug is really you know knows that he should be with the hot pharmaceutical rep but I think the rest of him is like not into it and he's just very non-committal to the whole thing well that and he's really uncomfortable at the very end of the interaction when she's like oh by the way wear the other shirt that goes better with this tie like wear the shirt i bought you mm-hmm. like yeah like she's he's her she's... little ken doll yeah i believe the term he uses later in the episode is kept man yeah which and, i love and also she should have burned that tie forget telling him to change <laughs> the shirt that tie is hideous that might be the worst tie we've seen him wear in the whole ep- like whole series to to this point that tie is rough i don't know the polka dot one was pretty bad too yeah yeah he's not the ties are not Clooney's strong suit yeah but uh we are we established once we actually get to the er after this uh that it is in fact thanksgiving so happy thanksgiving everyone sitting in november that timeline is holding strong yeah we'll see for how long especially with these holiday episodes coming up that gets pretty dicey but yeah we we see bob uh, she's putting up Halloween decorations because little precious baby doesn't doesn't quite get it. And Doug is like, "Hey, we just we just took those down." And she's like, "No, I I put up." She wiggles <laughs> wiggles the little ghost at him. Yeah, and she, and Doug's just like, "Well, okay then," and like, he just moves on. Keep working hard. Bye. Yeah, and uh, Doug is also carrying a pecan pie, clearly store bought, because who would expect Doug to actually bake? Or Linda, for that matter. She doesn't strike me as someone who bakes, but gives it for the potluck they're going to have later in the episode, which I have words about, but... <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, but we'll get there. <laughs> but yeah, Jerry is like, ooh, pecan pie, and like takes one of the pecans off, and Doug is just like, well, just help yourself. And Jerry just pulls out a fork. <laughs> <laughs> and just takes a giant bite of this pie. Yeah, 
And throughout all of this, Carter has his headphones in. He's uh, just making stitches on a pig's foot next to him, which uh, everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Like, he's like, oh, it's it's a pig's foot. It has the skin has resembles the elasticity of a of human skin. It's like, oh, I got about half a dozen of these in my freezer at home, which kind of sounds like a serial killer type thing. But what do yeah. I know? Also, his precious sweater vest. I love it. The combo of the sweater vest and the pig foot. Like, he's the world's nerdiest serial killer. It's just creeper vibes. Creeper vibes, Carter. (laughs) Well, and I I thought we were leaving Baby Carter behind. I thought we were, you know, like, I wanted you to leave Baby Carter behind, but I didn't want you to go into, like, you know, Dahmer Carter. Well, and I also want to point out this is the exact same thing we see Benton doing in one of the first couple episodes. True. True. Yeah. Is he doing it? But he's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing it on a pig's foot, but he's doing it in the lounge, which I feel like is a much more appropriate place to be doing that than the nurse's station. But I'm just saying, so Carter's been watching and observing, and since he isn't really getting to do a whole lot as far as traumas go, he's like, I might as well just sew up a bunch of pig's feet. Cool. All right. And it definitely comes in handy a little bit later, too. And then we see Doug and Mark talking, and they're talking about all their different plans for the holiday, and Doug asks Mark if Jen and Rachel are coming back into town. And Mark's like, oh, yeah, Jen and her folks. Like, you're just so upset about it. And then Doug's like, oh, have a good time with the Reverend. So I guess we find out a little bit more about Jen's family there. And then Lydia walks by. I don't remember if she's, like, in this interaction or if she just walks by, but Daniel, you ruined her for me. I cannot <laughs> see Lydia without hearing the Boomers theme song, and I wish we had a clip of it just to insert whenever we bring it up. Because we're still Boomers. <laughs> Because it just, it haunts me now. And Lizzie and I have been singing it to each other on and off since you showed <laughs> us that clip. Oh, It's just embedded in there now. Yeah, to be fair, it's I'm been sorry. mostly me singing random snippets of it at you. I still appreciate it. And I still hate it. Same um, six million of us. We're not dead yet. Um, <laughs> and then we snap over to Susan, who is clearly having a day, distressed by what she saw from Div the night before. And... She just kind of swings by Mark and is like, when things slow down, I need to talk to you. Like, she clearly needs her best friend. She needs to have somebody to voice this to. And then we, this has just been such a long sequence at the nurse's station. Yeah, but I kind of like it. Like, they do this thing where they, like, bounce the focus from one character to the next as they cross the shot. So, like, you get a little little bit of Lydia, you get a little bit of Carol, you get a little bit of Susan, you get, like, they kind of just bounce around, but they never actually leave the nurse's station. I think it's a really cool way to do the shot and kind of establish the, again, kind of the freneticism of the ER. And, you know, I just, I, I think it's a, a nice little touch. For sure. And then we get Susan's patient for the episode, Mr. Luck, who is a little spitfire. Who is Mr. Garrett Morris. So for those that don't know, and I feel like, I feel, I don't know, I feel like the target audience for this show would probably remember him, but I feel like a lot of people our age probably don't know who he is, but he was one of the season one SNL cast members. And he's like, he's probably like the least uh, well-known cast member from the original cast like he's not you know like a Chevy Chase or a John Belushi or anything like that that you like uh, this household name but he should be like he's really funny and like he can be really funny um one of his kind of running gags I guess on the early seasons of SNL which are not watchable in any like don't go back and watch season one SNL it's atrocious but one of his like running characters was the close like not closed captioning but like like for the hard of hearing 
people, he would like pop up in a little box at the corner of the screen and he would just repeat the lines from the sketch really, really loudly. That was him? And that was him. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and he kind of brings that frenetic energy to Mr. Luck. Like he kind of brings that sort of loud, bombastic fury to him. And uh, so, yeah, I was happy to see him pop up here. Yeah, that was great. Um, But so Susan's like, can you be quiet? He's like, piss off and just screaming at her and ranting about different things. And somebody's like, well, what's his story? And he goes, those Nazis in the clinic won't let me through the door. Susan translates this to he's been banned for abusing the staff. And just for the record, this is for the dialysis clinic because we find out that he's in renal failure and his ranting. I wish I had like either asked Lizzie to pull a sound clip of it or written down more excerpts from it because I was just cackling. He's so rude. And just peak, what we would call boomer ranting now, but this would have been back, like, (laughs) this is just like, okay, grandpa, like, just completely out of touch ranting, none of what he says is right, and it's so much fun to listen to, and Daniel's right, the energy he brings to it is great. So the old man energy is perfect for a Thanksgiving episode. Yes. And then we'd snap over to Carter and Benton real quick, and Carter's like, oh, you know, this outfit is it too much you know i was i wanted to make sure i had the right thing for thanksgiving and benton's like my mom's not right in the head you really like you're not really invited like just Mm. completely shits all over carter's dreams to go and spend thanksgiving together poor carter okay (sighs) here we go um after this we have our first depiction on this lovely young budding television series of a trans person We have Carter's main storyline for the episode takes shape here. We have a trans woman. Her name is Ms. Colton. Uh, She is played by, being 1994, of course, being played by a cis man. Bondi Curtis Hall, who actually not only plays this woman, but comes back for another seven or so episodes later in the series as Roger. So, like, as the person that Benton fights for custody of his kid. That's him? Yeah, it's the same actor. Same guy, yep. What? And also, also keeping with the uh, Benton Coming to America connection from last episode, Vondi Curtis Hall also appears in Coming to America as well. And he was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Guest Actor for his role on this show. I'm interested to hear what Lizzie's thoughts are on that uh, little distinction there. Um, and he also directed two season eight episodes. So he's like all over ER. Like, I mean, this is a first stop for him. And yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on that particular thing there, him being nominated for this performance? What do you think about that, Lizzie? I think that's a very 1990s thing to have happened. I would like to reiterate for the record that I am a trans person. I am a trans feminine non-binary person. I do quote unquote pass as a woman most days. And that's usually what I do for safety out in the world. So this was a really, really heavy storyline. You know, she's not really, it's, I have a hard time contextualizing all this just because it's 1994 your main media portrayals of trans people are Jerry Springer for the most part. And like the occasional thing like this, where it's very clearly a cis man and the whole crux of their storyline is them trying to pass. And what I mean by that, by passing is essentially once you get, it's, it's such a fucked up social construct for trans people, but basically getting to the point where you get to like where you get constantly gendered by 
the outside world as the gender you're transitioning to. So, like, if you're assigned male at birth and you're transitioning to a female, you're constantly getting manned, sheed, etc. in public. People are just reading you as a woman. And then, obviously, opposite on the spectrum for trans men. There's a lot of stuff there. And should we also clarify, just if any of our listeners have no familiarity with trans nomenclature at all, if you are a trans woman, that means that you were assigned male at birth and you now present as a woman. You prefer she, her, hers. Yeah. And if I just, you know, I want to clarify because some people aren't surrounded by the luxury of a diverse city like we are. And if you're a trans man, you were assigned female at birth, and you are now transitioning to be a male to fit who you actually are and identify as he, his, him. Yeah. And we're not even going to go into the whole non-binary and gender yeah, non-conforming no, thing. That's, that's a lot more. That... That's a bonus episode. Yeah. Uh... But I just wanted to clarify because there may be some listeners who aren't as familiar with all of it as we okay. are. Okay. But she, uh, just to take your time. I'm trying. I mean, I guess going back to the outstanding guest actor nod, I guess like he does a good job with it. I kind of as a, you know, as a heterosexual like guy, like, you know, I couldn't be further out of my element to give my opinion on this. But like, I also felt like that. I felt like he did a good job. Yeah. For what it's worth. I were, and you also have to remember, we're looking at this with 2019 glasses back in a 1994 TV series. So, like, this was totally the norm and still is to a certain degree to have cisgendered men playing transgender women on TV and in movies and stuff. But yeah, so the character, Ms. Colton, she comes in, she crashed her car into a bridge, was in a car accident. And Benton and Carter taking care of her, and they're being very respectful, and she's very clearly, again, quote-unquote, passing. So she's being read as a woman. You know, they're doing all this stuff, and then, you know, she has a pretty deep cut on her hip, so they have to remove her clothing. And then as soon as Carter takes her skirt off, he gets all panicked and nervous, and um, just says, Dr. Benton, we seem to have a new bit of information here. It's her penis. And... All of a sudden, from there, Carter just instantly flips into, like, super cold mode, which, like, ugh, goddammit, Carter, why, why? He's a big whiny baby in this episode. Like, he's, yeah, he he really disappoints me. He just freezes her out the minute he sees it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's, that's completely out of character for him, That for every other interaction that we know about him. Not, not only to this point, but also going forward, too. I mean we kind of have the luxury of knowing the full arc of Carter. And I just don't feel like this is a, a reaction that tracks with John Carter, the guy with that he becomes. But I think this was also probably contributing to how he reacts to things later on. It could be, it could be a growth thing. Yeah, no, he does. He does do a lot of growing in this episode, which we'll see later, later in this episode. Again, the trope of, a woman or a queer person dying for the sake of a male character to experience growth yeah in a narrative yeah um but she asks could somebody give me a gown please benton immediately starts to call call her mister 
but then she's like, no, I go by Miss. And to Benton's credit, immediately switches back and, and does not fuck it up for the rest of the for the rest of the episode. Go Benton. So yeah, but like Benton's like, oh yeah, you know, stitcher uh, stitcher up Carter, and she's like, alone, like. Dude, Carter, oh my god. Like, what do you think is gonna happen? Ugh. You were completely non-threatened by this person when you thought she was a woman, which she is. Yes, and transgender people are not predators. No. For the love of fucking Christ, we are not predators or violent or whatever fucking transphobic bullshit people might be spewing these days. So that's where we leave Carter right now. Being a whiny, terrified baby about having to treat a patient. Oh no, it's so hard to be him. Okay, so to pivot us out of that, uh, we go over and we get introduced to uh, what's ultimately going to be Carol's big arc of the episode. We get a big trauma coming in. Car ran a red light at high speed and hit a 22-year-old girl. And we're unfortunately told right off the bat that the girl was decapitated at the scene. So yeah, you've got two guys or two kids you know young male adults coming in one of them ends up with doug in one of the trauma rooms and you hear doug saying "Eh, we got a lot of gray matter here meaning brain matter which is never a good sign that's pretty much a death sentence and carol is over with the conscious patient whose name we find out is andy and she's just so good with him i mean we, we see yet another example of carol's proficiency as a nurse and just she's just so good when it comes to being that calm soothing voice for a patient you know when they're in their moment of need there's a weird random bearded doctor working in the trauma uh, langworthy i should have mentioned she's in there as well she jumps in and um yeah there's like a random bearded doctor that we've never seen before and we will never see again so don't know who that guy's supposed to be and if he was somebody significant to the crew or cast or whatever but he's in there so he's worth mentioning they go and they do, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name of the uh, procedure. My wife would kill me. But basically, the, the gist of the procedure is they fill the abdomen with fluid and then they drain the fluid to see if blood comes out with it. And it's to, it's kind of a test to see if there's significant internal bleeding. Um, in Andy's case, fuck yeah, there is because the, the tube almost immediately fills with blood. Uh, so they rush him off to surgery as they're rushing him out of the room. You hear from the other trauma across the hall that Larry has died. They give him a time of death of 9.33. And as he's being wheeled out, he leans close to Carol, or Carol leans down to him, and he lets slip that it was his fault that he was driving the car, and he's responsible for Larry's death and and the death of the girl. And so Carol just kind of is left to deal with that as they whisk him away to surgery. And uh, this is going to kind of set up kind of the moral dilemma for not only Carol, but Andy as well as we go through the rest of the episode. And then we do a quick cut over to Susan and Mr. Luck. She's managed to get him a dialysis machine and gets him all nice and hooked up. And he's still just spewing his cranky old man rants. Not really too much happens with them right now. But she's just like, okay, thank God. We've at least, we're at least working on getting him fixed and out of our hair. And then there's a little um, excerpt here. And I just want to note that Carol and Doug are actually getting along for this next sound clip. There's no weird hostility. There's no tension between them. They're just acting like good friends. Yeah, but they're talking about sort of like the worst, like most dangerous things that they've ever done now that they've seen this kid in the car accident. And it's actually a little fun moment. So here we go. Kid who went up, is he going to make it? I think so. One out of three. 
What a waste. Every time I see a kid go up there, I think, there but the grace of God. Tell me about it. When I was in high school, we used to race this guy's TR-7 up on River Road, pin the speedometer at 120. We used to climb those giant TV antennas all the way up to the top. Must have been 200, 300 feet. You did that? Otto Yevich. His dad was a demolitions expert, so we used to steal boxes of dynamite and play chicken. I don't believe you guys. The worst thing Howie Dolan and I ever did was Chinese fire drills at the Velvet Freeze. Yes, you and Howie were born to be wild. <laughs> did I miss something? No. No, I'm just being publicly ridiculed. Oh. So how about some coffee? Sure. So yeah. What a dweeb. <laughs> yep, just some fun camaraderie between everybody. I just I just love it. It's just nice to have everybody getting along for a minute. But yeah, so yay, everybody's getting along. And then Doug has called Tag down to take a look at what is it, a kid's um ankle? Elbow? Some more elbow, I think. Yeah. Part yeah, he elbow, says, I think. size of a grapefruit. So Tag's like, hold on just a second, because Carol's right there, so Tag sneaks up on Carol and gives her some big smoochies. And he's like, oh, I'm so excited. For, like, are you going to be able to get off work? Because I really, my mom's so excited to spend time with you today. And I'm really excited for you to get to, you know, hang out with her. And he's just like a little Boy Scout. And just doing all of this right in front of Doug. And Doug just starts ripping up papers. Like just, oh, oh, you're still here? Okay, let's let's go look at this kid's elbow. Like, Yeah. When they when they had their kiss, I, you could almost hear in the background the sitcom audience going, ooh. <laughs> And what does Lydia say? Lydia says something like, oh, that's the best kiss I've had in years or something. Just Most action them. I've had in months or something yes. like that. Because <laughs> we're still boomers. God damn it. And then after that, you know, going right back down uh, with Carter and uh, Ms. Carlton, uh, I wanted to give you some, uh, how do I want to call this? Just some context of just how ice cold Carter is being with her. So... Yeah, let's give it a lesson. So what's your name? My name is John Carter. You've grown awfully quiet, John Carter. Oh, I see. I had a friend once. We would go to lunch, happy hours, shopping. Over drinks one night, I told her about myself. She stood up, left the table, and never spoke to me again. I used to feel those things made me stronger, more sure of who I was. These days, I spend three hours putting on my face before I dare go outside, plucking and waxing. And even then, someone always notices. I can see by the look in their eyes. The disgust. Maybe they're right. Maybe I am disgusting. So, yeah. I also wanted to get this as a good example of just for some re for some people why the concept of quote-unquote passing is really key to their safety is because you know as illustrated here we still do live in a transphobic society in a very transphobic society and for a lot of trans folks you know myself included 
it's hard to go outside sometimes, especially, you know, especially when you're not necessarily like having a good, I don't know, it's, it can be frightening is what I'm trying to get at. And, you know, I have been subject to harassment and I have had to get physical with people in the past because they've been harassing me. And it's just for a lot for a lot of folks, it's just if they do what they can to pass as their desired, you know, gender presentation, just because that's just the society that we live in. And I don't know exactly. I feel like I'm talking in circles right now. Am I right in understanding that the passing construct is more on behalf of society because that way the trans individual is less likely to get called out and have to deal with other people's prejudices? Yes, that, that is a good way to put it. Thank you for that, for chiming in with that. It's what I do. But one thing I'm glad that they really don't do in this episode is they don't really make her the butt of a joke. They, you know, mm-hmm. actually do treat her storyline as serious. We'll we'll get to her conclusion here in a little bit. But yeah, she's not being made fun of. It's they're not well, just no one's pointing at, for, pointing at her. Except for Connie. Oh, we'll get. Oh, I have words. <laughs> I have words for that later. But but yeah, for the most part, no one's pointing and laughing and saying, "Hey, it's a man in a dress" or something like that. So I'm glad they at least stayed away from that. They treat how they wrote her character as if they were writing a person. They didn't mm-hmm. make her out to be a caricature, which I think is what makes it here, is that they still try and make her somebody to empathize with, or if not empathize, at least sympathize with, which I think is why, yes, this episode illustrates a lot of problematic views, and yes, really shitty things happen, but I think the reason we don't hate this episode is because they give this character and the weight of the storyline what it deserves. And then we go to Lydia's walking through the nurse's station, and Al shows up, her future (laughs) husband. And he's brought in a patient for Doug, because no one else is available. And this fucking dweeb is a animal rights activist who kidnapped a turkey from a display, a live turkey, a huge turkey, from a display because he felt it was being abused, being displayed at this Thanksgiving pageant thing. It was in no danger right then. It was part of a show. But this idiot steals the turkey, throws it in the car, nearly gets pecked to death, and in a moment of terror, snaps the bird's neck and feels so ashamed. But tells Doug that secretly a bestial part of him liked it. (laughs) Oh, we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, but so he does this, and then they... The crux of it is they bring the bird in because the bird was still in the car. They're like, hey, you got a turkey for your potluck later. Yeah. And Tag walks by and is just like, oh, shit. Is this this bird? Oh, man, I, I love these. Like, blah, 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 blah. Like, this is great. This thing's huge. And somebody's like, oh, I don't know if you're going to be able to get food prep to cook it for you. And Tag's like, no worries. I got this. Takes the bird away. I used to defeather these th- these things all the time when I was so, a kid. We see how that goes later, but boy, howdy, I love tag in this scene. It's so great, and like just Al and Lydia are just laughing, and Al is loving telling this story. It's so good. <laughs> and said idiot is played by a guy named Graham Jarvis. Who, holy fucking shit, this guy might be I think the most decorated. Oh hey, it's that guy that we've had maybe in the entire run of the show up to this point. Like, he was definitely a guy whose face I recognized, but I was, like, floored when I looked at his IMDb how 
prolific this guy was. Just listen to this. This is a selection of credits from his IMDb. First of all, they date all the way back to 1952. So we're starting in 19, 1952 with this guy, and we're gonna we're gonna run all the way up to 2003 when he you know unfortunately passes away. So starting in 1952, this is a list of shows that he has appeared on, and what a fucking murderer's row of shows this is. Here we go. <sighs> Guiding Light, All in the Family, The Odd Couple, MASH, Gunsmoke, The Bob Newhart Show, Sanford and Son, The Love Boat, Starsky and Hutch, Mr. Mom, Cagney and Lacey, Fame, Married with Children, Murder, She Wrote, Charles in Charge, Murphy Brown, Star Trek The Next Generation, L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, The X-Files, The Drew Carey Show, Jag, Six Feet Under, and Seventh Heaven, which he spent seven seasons on until his death from cancer in 2003. That's where I recognize him from. That That was a list. And there's dozens of others. Like, this is just the selection. Like, these are the highlights. This is this guy was in everything for decades. I mean, you're talking about from 52 to 2003. This guy had a 50-year career in, in film and TV. That is insane. The fuck? So, yeah, I just wanted to highlight him before we... Before we we joke on him too hard for getting pecked to death, I just I just love how he how his character is. It's just he presents it so well and so dweeby, and I love it. But then we 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 have a a big shift. Susan and Mark are on the roof, I think. Yeah, they're up on the roof. They're talking. Uh, Susan's finally getting a chance to talk about Div's depression. She's telling Mark what she thinks and. Like, she's like, yeah, I know you don't like him, but he's really struggling, and I just, I need somebody to listen right now. And Mark's just like, if he's that bad, he shouldn't be treating patients. Like, he needs to go get help. And Susan gets really mad at him for this, and I'm just wondering, like, Susan, why are you getting mad at Mark when you asked him for advice? Like, you solicited this conversation. You knew he was going to say this. Yeah, she doesn't want advice. She wants affirmation. Like, she wants to be told that everything's fine and not to worry about it. And he's telling her what she already knows, but she doesn't want to hear that because she doesn't want to accept that about him. Right. But yeah, so just little friend moment there, and she just storms off in a huff back to whatever she's doing. We flip back over to Clooney with Turkey Man, and I just wanted to note, Clooney has great hair here. He's way away from the from the Caesar we had in episode one. It's full <laughs> Clooney floof right here, and he's rocking it, and he's so handsome. And yeah, then all of a sudden we fl- <laughs> we look over, <laughs> and all these trauma rooms have windows. You can see into the trauma rooms one to the other. They look over, <laughs> and Tag is using one of the like gurneys, has the turkey on it, and we just see him going to town plucking this turkey. It's just. <laughs> It is a cacophony of feathers, and I know cacophony is a sound word, but it is a maelstrom of feathers in the next room, and the guy is just like, can can we shut the window, please? It's like, oh, God. But what Ta- have I done? But Tag has the biggest fucking smile on his face, and it's just <laughs> part loving of, life. Part of me thinks it has to be the actor, like, how great is my job that I just get to sit here and look like a manic idiot for 30 seconds? I know, and he's going so fast, too. Like, it looks like it's almost a twice the speed like they should be playing the benny hill music or something like can this please be our teaser for this episode just tag (laughs) plucking that turkey all right noted i'll I'll keep that in mind because that's not a tonal difference from what actually happens in this episode at all i mean i'd rather have that than i was gonna say i'm not cutting any of that other stuff no so. so but yeah just to completely lighten the mood before it's sad again yeah, before we go right back, right back into somber 
mode with uh, going back with Miss Carl, uh, Miss Colton. She's now talking with Carter about her relationship with her father. Uh, she said she hadn't seen him in ten years, and her dad didn't recognize her at all. Her dad was, oh, yeah, are you Henry's girlfriend? Henry being this woman's dead name. Dead name referring to so you know someone's name before they transition. So like you know my name now is Elizabeth, but my dead name you know I have one. <laughs> it is a well kept secret. Sure. I just don't like to talk about it if no, I don't have to, because I'm done with that name, and I don't it's, like it It's anymore. a dead name. It's yeah. a dead name. You exactly. But, you know, and then the dad was just like, oh, you look just like your sister. Henry, you may you may wear a dress, but you're still my son, and just, ugh. That, that, <clears throat> that line hit me in the feels so fucking hard, because I've gone through a lot of that with family specific family members where they refuse to let go of the fact that I'm not a guy anymore. Lauren's just sitting over here freaking out because she's had many, many arguments with this family member. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. How you doing there, buddy? I'm great. <laughs> I love your family, but God. <laughs> oh, and can I point out real quick that this, that last line occurred... Like, after she had reunited with her father, this was when he was on his deathbed. It was the last words. No, she thought he, they were gonna... Was it? Yeah, because she said, she said he came to see me because he wanted to tell me he was dying. And then the last words he ever spoke to me were, Henry, you may wear dresses, mm. but you're still my son. That and, was a little... Yeah. That was a little toned out because just because of the emotions that were... Yeah. That this was stirring so, within me. And, yeah, to make it even worse. Yeah, and then Carter just is stone cold, says nothing throughout this entire thing. It's just super focused in on his stitches. Uh, Mark comes in and, you know, says, hello, ma'am. Or, hello, yeah. miss. And just casually and double checks Carter's work on the stitches and, like, gives him some praise. And he smiles and is like, all right, to himself. And, like, she just rolls <laughs> over and she's like, well, good for you. There's ice. Yeah. And he, then, he deserves that. Yeah. Uh... But I love, well, I both love and hate that the burden is on her in this interaction. But I do love that even in the face of him being a twitchy, ice cold baby, where he's just like, I mean, they, they do a couple tight shots on his face and he's literally twitching. Like, he's just like so uncomfortable but even in the face of all of that she's still incredibly gracious like she's never outwardly rude to him like she's never like she doesn't like call him on his shit like i said it, it sucks that the burden of that interaction is on her but it's still like so impressive to see that like in that even in such a shitty situation she still has this like graciousness about her well, and Daniel, I just want to say, you bring up a very good point that with a lot of things, it's often unfairly fallen to a lot of our um, trans brothers and sisters that they have the burden of education, of patience, of understanding, of emotional labor placed on them Ugh. instead of other people learning how to Google or just, you know, pull their big girl pants up and oh. learn. Mm -hmm. Okay, I will say on with that, that if a person is genuinely respectful and genuinely curious, I have had lots of pleasant conversations with folks 
about the trans experience and about my story and about, you know, just the different steps that folks generally have to go through in order to obtain the treatments and the medicines and the stuff mm-hmm. to get to where I am. I, you know, I've been on hormones now for, for closing in on five years now, which blows my mind. Golly gee, what an adventure. Yeah, and it's been a trip, you know. It's hard work growing tits. Um, <laughs> Especially when you are one. Oh, man, that's Rude. going in the description of the episode. Yeah, no, but I also, also on the flip side, have have had a lot of really disrespectful conversations like one of my former co-workers his first question after i you know came out to the office because i was going to start switching my name and pronouns while i was working there he was like he took me out to lunch and the first question after we sat down was you know so when are you chopping your dick off that is not a respectful question i know this person yeah. That's awful. Yes, because we worked in the same office. I forgot about that question. I forgot about that whole thing. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Oof. The rest of the conversation was fine, but that was that was my first. <laughs> Not a great opener. And that was early on, too. That was when you were first coming out. Yeah, that was like three months in. It's a whole thing. But yeah, just sort of reinforcing Lauren's point that a lot of emotional labor and a lot of onus is, is often placed on trans people to be the educator versus people trying to educate themselves okay and now we go back to susan and mr luck she says she's you know she's helped him out she's gotten him another appointment at the dialysis clinic you know we've gotten them to take you back and he starts berating her and like i didn't want to go what the hell blah 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 and she's like well if you don't go you'll end up back here and none of us wants that and he just goes shove it you little pinhead puke and we learn a little bit later Today is not the day to be harassing Susan. She gets her comeuppance, which I don't agree with, but we'll talk about it when we get there. Mm. And then Andy's mom shows up. This was the kid from the car accident from earlier who's go- who has gone up to surgery. Carol is about to take her up there where they're currently removing his spleen. And Andy's mom is played by Linda Kearns. Daniel, do you have any more information on her? Not a ton. The most notable things on her IMDb was that she had bit parts in Titanic and Rat Race. So, yeah. And, like, the the character names meant nothing to me, so she must have been just, like, either an extra or a minor character. I love both those movies. And then, right as Carol's about to take her upstairs, oh, no, Larry's mom has come in. Oh, God. This is about to get real messy. Yeah, and Larry's mom is played by Caroline Lagerfeld. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, And she had a much more kind of robust filmography uh she's been in stuff uh, such as the blacklist gotham gossip girl and minority report all of those are big blind spots for me but maybe somebody out there knows her from one of those shows and maybe she's one of your favorites or not i don't know and unfortunately here it falls to carol to break the news to larry's mom that he did not make it in the car accident and larry's mom this actress, Carolyn, absolutely nails the grief reaction. And good on Andy's mom for, like, patting her on the back and being there for her. Like, clearly these two kind of know each other. Like, maybe they'd met once or twice because their kids were friends. But it's just, oof. Poor Carol. It's it's not her day. And she's sitting here with the weight of what actually happened weighing on her for a little bit later on. Then we get we go back to Susan and Mr. Luck, and Mr. Luck is complaining about having his temperature taken, and uh, we get a we get a thing that 
again, maybe in 1994 it was funny, but it really wasn't to Lauren and I when we were watching. Yeah, Susan just straight up, what is it like? Is it an artificial flower or a is thermometer? It... No, like there's a flower oh, coming. Oh, I missed yes. that. Then yeah, it was it was the sunflowers from the it was the fake sunflower from the vase. Yeah, like she tells Mister Luck he's ta- she's taking her temp she's taking his temperature, and with a rectal thermometer and sticks a synthetic sunflower up this dude's ass, leaves the curtain open. Everyone's laughing at him. Like, whoa! And she's like, "I'll be back in ten minutes." Not great not great i forgot about the i didn't i didn't see the sunflower when i was taking my notes so yeah that makes it 10 times worse yeah just what the that that just threw me off a lot it was not a great moment for susan at all and then we go back upstairs carol has taken andy's mom up to visit him and she's checking on the patient in the next curtain over and she hears andy straight up lie to his mom about how the car accident happened We found out at the beginning of the episode, you know, like we mentioned, that Andy owns up to Carol that I was driving, I killed them all, it's my fault. But his mom here asks, you know, oh, how did it happen? And he says, you know, Larry ran a red light and I tried to stop him and I couldn't. And just sets up this narrative that's total bullshit. And Carol hears it and is super conflicted about if she's going to rat this kid out or not. And Carol walks past and he sees that she was in the next curtain over. They make eye contact and he looks absolutely terrified that Carol's going to rat him out. Yeah, he pulls a real quick face, real, real wide eyed and terrified. And just quickly, Andy's actor is a guy named Greg Rushton. His two big credits that I found for him were Big, the Tom Hanks movie from the 80s and uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I don't recognize him from either one. I honestly spent the whole episode thinking that he was that other guy, uh, Ben Foster, who's been in a bunch of shit, and it wasn't. So his most notable thing is that he kind of looks like another, oh, hey, it's that guy. So not too memorable. So, oh, hey, it's not that guy. No, it's not that guy. But after that, we get a little fun beat that I pulled. Mark and Doug just talking about just how sheltered Mark has been throughout his life. I never said you were boring. You implied it. Mark, I think that you're an extremely dynamic individual, especially in those glasses. What's wrong with my glasses? I mean, they're perfect. Going to surgery. You know, back in college, every Friday night, I used to go to the Rothschild and drink beer with lots of beer, pitchers. Hmm. You're right. I'm boring. I've never done anything irresponsible in my life. Trust me, irresponsible is overrated. I've never been arrested. I've never gone out and spent money on something that I didn't need. And I have never been to Bermuda with a horny drug sales lady. It's the Bahamas, and trust me, I wouldn't be going if she weren't paying. She's paying? She pays for everything, my dinner, my clothes. I begin to feel like a kept man. I've never been a kept man. <laughs> Neither have I, Mark. Neither have I. Uh, I am, and it's great. Uh, it's really awesome when your wife makes, like, twice as much money as you do on, like, a week. So, yeah, it's great. Dude, go for it, man. Lean into Actually, that relatable i just never been in a situation where someone would take me to like the bahamas like that much wealth disparity i take you to brunch <laughs> it's true and i appreciate everything that you do for me and thank you for being the light, the light of my life there you go um so doug has a sugar mama 
And we shift back over to Lydia and Carol having a little heart-to-heart about Andy killing Larry. And Carol's just like, you know, do I do I tell his mom that he's a fucking liar? Is this my place? And Lydia's like, I would. It's manslaughter. Like, yeah, kid needs to pay for it. And Carol's like, well, I don't know. People come in here and they tell us things where they think they're going to die that they wouldn't tell their priest or their mother or anything. Yeah, Carol's like, I don't know. I don't think I can tell the police. It's not my place. So that's just kind of where we leave their conversation. And then we switch over to... There's a woman who came in with... Oh, Lupus. The Lupus lady. Yeah, with Lupus lady. There's a woman who came in with chest pain, and she had been diagnosed with lupus about eight months before, I think, or a year before. And they get her very quickly into a trauma room and get her hooked up to an an, uh, EKG. And golly, that printer noise is so grating. That old school EKG printer. And the... I can't remember who asks, but... Langworthy and Benton show up and someone's like, oh, are you guys the cardiologists today? And they're like, no, Kaysen's on his way from Highland Park, which is another Chicago suburb. And so they're standing in as the cardiac consults for this. And we find out that this woman has a pericardial effusion and they have to quickly clear the pericardium. Yeah, they have to drain. She has a fluid collecting in the sac around her heart and it's basically like it's basically strangling her heart like she's not it's not able to beat properly and so they have to drain the fluid out so that she can her heart can beat properly right and it is so cool to watch this because Langworthy's like no you haven't gotten to do one of these before you do it and she coaches Benton through the whole thing and like helps him do a huge save with this by like cutting a really small incision in the pericardium once the initial procedure doesn't work and it's really great to see them actually getting along and how good of a team they would make if she wasn't leaving for the fellowship. And then after that, uh, Susan goes to see Div. He has that depression, half stoned, half just not completely not there. It's like catatonic. Yeah, catatonic. Thank you. That's the word I was trying to go for. Uh, look on his face. And, you know, Susan, Susan genuinely cares about him and genuinely is trying, you know, or she's asking if, you know, he's looking to seeing a therapist and, you know, he's still trying to put on a decent little facade. You know, he's like, things are starting to fall in place. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about it. And that's just never a good thing that you want to hear from someone that's that level of depressed because that could mean that they're about to kill themselves. And yeah, that's kind of a alarm bells should be ringing there but i mean it's i guess it's harder to see especially if you're both doctors and you know you'd think that he as a psychiatrist would know when he would be in trouble like that so i guess she's just really trying to trust him talk about that they have dinner plans for thanksgiving with chloe and some random dude you know she's like you know maybe we can talk afterwards and div's face just like does not read as a good sign it's just a very fake looking half smile he says like yeah yeah i'd like that like when i paused this to take my notes i had paused it right before he put the smile on and it's just the flattest most chilling look right before he smiles and says i'd like that and yeah the reason we mentioned the never a good thing to hear um for someone that level of depressed is because in a lot of cases when somebody dies by suicide there's a peak of 
not necessarily happy activity right beforehand, but they'll almost have a sense of calm and normalcy and assuredness beforehand because they've made their decision. Been there. I was trying not to name names. No, it's um, fine. <laughs> I deal with major depressive disorder. I have survived multiple suicide attempts, so I can very much relate to this headspace. And I have seen it happen, and I have seen the eerie calm that comes before the storm, and I'm very proud and grateful that Lizzie's still here. So yeah, Div's spiral here just strikes very true to home, and that's why I'm going to be really nice to him this episode if I can manage it. And then we go back to Larry's mom. She's just walking down the hall, really aimlessly sniffling, and his mom just looks so lost. And Carol comes by and is like, hey, you know, can I get you anything? Do you need to call to get a ride home? Do you need some water? And this woman's just like, no, I would just like to really sit down. And then she starts talking and is beating herself up and feeling angry at Larry. Like, why was he so stupid? What could I have done differently? You know, why did he do this? Because she doesn't know that Andy was the one who killed her son and decapitated that 22-year-old girl. And so she's having the burden of grief and anger and kind of survivor's guilt all on her at once. And you can see Carol just dying to give this woman comfort and dying to tell her that it was not her son's fault. And then we go to the worst possible thing in this whole episode. Carter goes to check on Miss Colton and she's not in her room and she's she's nowhere in there and he sees Connie putting something away and he's like, Connie, have you seen my patient? And Connie, Connie, you're better than this. Connie goes, oh, you mean the she-male? You're better than this, Connie. Come on. Like, even by 1994 standards, come the fuck on. At least, at least call her, like, a transsexual or whatever. Transvestite or even if you're going to get it wrong. Anything is better. She-male, come on. Oh, my God. That's the worst part of this episode for me. That's Connie? Yeah. Especially just because... You've never seen Connie with this patient before now. So, like, what the fuck? It means someone's talking shit. Yeah. Like, <sighs> sorry, like, I just have is, a lot of feelings. This is something we would expect of Frank. Ah, uh-huh. yes. Yeah, that's a very Frank line. Yes, that's a very good point. Like, this would be Frank or Romano. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Romano would fit, too. There's, yeah. There's a lot of this stuff in this episode, a lot of out-of-character things. like, But not Connie. Connie's acting weird. Lewis is acting weird. Carter's acting weird. Like This would have been as jarring as if they had had Lydia say it. Even Lydia, I feel like, would have fit better than Connie. Fair. And then we quick go back over to Langworthy and Benton working on this pericardial effusion patient. And Benton's managing to, like, there's a little bit of a scare that she starts to flatline. And Langworthy's just like, okay, cut the pericardial sac three millimeters. If you cut it anymore, her heart will jump out. And I was just like, ugh. Gross. Oh my god, no. That's just, that's a horrifying visual. So, they make the save. Good job, Benton. You're awesome. And then, we see Carol has made the decision. She's gonna go talk to Andy and try and guilt trip him into telling the truth. Because she's seen what can do to a person and she's self-sabotaged herself with lying in the past. And she doesn't want to see Andy destroy himself that way because he's going to take this secret to the grave. Awful turn of phrase, but... 
he's gonna take this with him for the rest of his life and live with the guilt that he killed his friend and have that be the narrative that he was the good boy who survived like she doesn't want him to carry that weight and he kind of turns it back on her too though he kind of says you know like have you always told the truth have you always made it right and she has to admit you know that she hasn't and that's kind of what leads us into the last bit which we'll get to in a little bit but like he kind of in a way helps her as well you know kind of know that she's got some unfinished business when it comes to uh the tag and doug kind of back and forth and so you know we'll we'll get to that in a minute but then after that uh we get to the reason why i gave a content warning for suicide in this one so next audio clip is pretty heavy so take a deep breath listen with us i think it's an extremely good bit of acting on everyone's part but Jerry's running up to the roof. He says there's a jumper, and we find out it's Miss Colton. So let's give it a listen. Make sure she gets was, uh, What's going on, Jerry? Uh, jumper on the roof. Some lady. Looks like she's going to go. Oh, God. Excuse me. She's, she's my patient. Miss Colton? Please. Please. Don't, don't come any closer. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, Miss Colton, I know you must be feeling really terrible right now, but, uh, but, but there's people, there's people, there's people in the hospital that can help you. I can't pass for a woman anymore. It's all I've ever wanted to be. Just look at me. Just look at me and talk to me. We can talk about it. <laughs> Carter? Oh, thank God. Would you like to introduce me to your friend? Miss Carlton, there's a doctor here who can help you. Is it okay if he talks? No, don't! Oh, God! They all play it so well. It's so fucking tragic, but they all nail their beats. And yeah, so like, at least if you're going to have her storyline end this way, and you know, if you're going to have her jump off the roof and kill herself, like, at least everyone's giving it the proper, like, <sighs> trying to think how to phrase it. The significance or the... Yeah, the it's given, yeah, everyone's giving it the proper significance, the proper just like almost i don't want to say it was tragedy yeah remorse yeah i'm gonna keep the acting is fantastic is what i'm trying to say everyone's playing it exactly the way they should so spoiler for future episodes like i think in moments of real crisis speaking specifically of carter here i can be very critical of carter and by extension noah wiles acting chops like i think that that's where for me, I feel like that's where a lot of the bloom comes off the rose for Carter is his acting in moments of real tragedy and crisis. I'm speaking specifically of the end of season six or seven, whenever him and Lucy have their thing. I really hate that scene and I really hate his acting in it. And I think it ruins it. Wait, like when he gets stabbed or? Yes. You two can go to blows about it. Yes. His acting immediately after the stabbing is one of my least favorite moments in the entire show. Not because, I mean... 
it's a big moment, but it I think it's completely undercut by him hamming it up. But like I said, we'll, we'll argue that point when we get there. I think that for this moment right here, and then there's one other moment that comes a few seasons after this with the gosh the it's the other medical student that's here for a brief time played by omar epps when his storyline before he goes on the house right when his storyline wraps up which we don't need to get into specifics of how it wraps up but when when his storyline wraps up there's a moment where carter has a very similar reaction to the one we just heard and those are the two moments that stand out to me of the good of carter and how like he can really turn it on when he wants to and it's just like, damn, like he really nails it there. Like that, that just desperate kind of yelp he gives where it's just ugh. like it would be the most chilling thing in the scene if it were not for the complete lack of a reaction from Div. Like Div treats it like he just saw any pick any normal everyday interaction. Like he's just like he kind of he does everything but shrug like he kind of just walks away. And that to me is like the most chilling thing about the whole interaction he's got nothing left like he's got no emotion left in in him and that's the scariest part to me and speaking specifically of miss colton like she's such a tragic character in the sense that like there's a lot of people along the way that let that woman down and failed her and it just for the context of our story it sucks that carter had to be the last one like it just really sucks that he had to be the last person to let her down and i'm not saying that you know he caused her suicide i don't think that's necessarily true but it just sucks that he had to be her last bad interaction before her life ended and that just sucks well said and then in probably the hardest of the hard pivots that we've ever had on this series so far or ever will have we go right from that to the fucking potluck. To be fair, I'm guessing there was a pr- probably a commercial break. Yeah. Right after that. Oh, no, but even with... There's, even no then, good, there's no good way to transition out of that. That's true. Yeah. There's no good way to transition out of it. I don't know that of all... Like, yes, it's a list of bad options, but I don't know that going directly to a roasted turkey was the best way to pivot out of that. Like, that was yeah. a little bit macabre. I feel like you could have done a lot better with if you would have gone to like resolve Carter and Benton either that or or if you taught or if you went back to Carol and the kid or something like that something a little bit not as happy-go-lucky as the fucking potluck they use it as a transition to get from where we just were to Carol kind of confronting her own you know indiscretions as it relates to tag like I get the impulse on the the part of the writers to want to break that up a little bit. Like you've had one really, really heavy moment. Should we really follow it with another one? And I get their impulse to, to want to try to break up the tension there, but uh, potluck might not have been the way to go, bruh. Like it just seemed really insensitive and <laughs> I don't know, but that does lead us into Carol kind of spilling it all out to tag. So she, grabs him out of the potluck and says, you know, hey, can we go outside, take a walk, and, and let's talk. And uh, he's immediately on the, like, he's immediately suspicious. Like, he's immediately like, is this a good talk or a bad talk? And she's like, eh, kind of whatever about it. She lets slip. Well, she doesn't let slip. She she owns up to it. She says that she 
slept with Doug before her suicide attempt earlier in the year, which is, of course, when we met her. So this is stuff that all happened pre-pilot. But it also establishes that her and Tag were already a thing before the pilot as well. And Tag kind of rightfully so absolutely flips shit. Like, he is super pissed, you know. And I mean... Yes, it's a, a little bit of an over-the-top reaction, but I do feel like he has every right to be mad here. Like, and, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's a shitty situation. It, it had to be done, but it's it's a shitty situation all the way around. And essentially, the crux of his message here is like, I've been a good guy to you. Like, would you rather I treat you like trash like Doug does? And he has a kind of a point. I don't know. Like, ugh. I don't know. Tag is a character that I feel like I've done a complete 180 on from my first watch to now. Like, I feel like my first watch through, I treated him like the stereotypical jock character who was easy to dispose of and easy to hate. And I feel like I'm a lot more sympathetic to Tag's situation in this watch through. Like we've talked about when I think when he was introduced, like we're conditioned to hate him based on his appearance and his demeanor and everything. But really, there's nothing wrong with Tag. Like Tag's not a bad guy. And he just gets dealt a shit hand time and time again. So it just, it's a bummer. Yeah. And I thought about grabbing the audio for this, but I thought, I keep forgetting the name of the actor who plays Tag. I like it's, he just seems like generic white boy number 500 on this show. I mean, he does a fine, he does a fine job with this, but yeah, he's not particularly memorable. Yeah. But I just thought he overacted the shit out of this. Yeah. He's, a, he's definitely, especially when she first tells him, like, he's on 10, he's doing the damn thing. And so then we go back inside, and just before we get our wrap-up to Carter and Benton's, that, that we get the kind of, I don't know what you would call it, the uh, the debriefing on the whole situation uh, with Miss Colton. We have a quick little interaction with Benton and Langworthy. He sees Langworthy heading up the stairs and stops her and just kind of thanks her for her help and, you know, with everything. And we really get this nice interaction with them of, you know, they, they're almost like equals now, both personally and sort of professionally as well. And, you know, through hearing about or listening to them talk, you know, I realized that she's going off to the, this fellowship starting the day after this episode. So this is it for Langworthy. This is our first kind of semi-significant departure. Nine episodes in, we get our first departure. So this is this is it for Langworthy. She doesn't she never appears on the show again. I think she serves her purpose. I think she you know, we talked about this when she was brought in that she's kind of a good first attempt at giving Benton a foil without dipping in too heavy into the romantic stuff. You know, they would do that later on with other people. But, uh, you know, I I still think that she's a character who she earned her place by the time, by the end there. I thought she was pretty disposable at first. She kind of grew on me as we went along. Well, that and, you know, you talking about her having a purpose at the very end of this interaction, Benton like shyly thanks her for the help that day. And she's like, duh, this is a teaching hospital. Like, we're supposed to pass things on to those who know less than us. We're instructing. We're supposed to be there for our students. Right. Exactly. Which leads into the next interaction very well. Then after that, we go to a scene of Carter and Benton. Benton sort of, like Daniel said, sort of doing a little bit of a debrief with Carter. Um, So here we go. Carter. If anybody's responsible, it's me. She came in here because she crashed her car into a bridge. Now, I should have recognized that as a suicide attempt, but I didn't. 
So next time, we'll both be more attentive. Come on, Carter, let's go. What? My family, they're holding dinner until 7.30. If we hurry up, we can catch the prayer. Thank you, Dr. Benton. I think I just want to be alone. Carter, you promised my mother, didn't you? What are you going to do? You going to back out? Come on. Grab your coat. Let's go. Let's go, Carter. Benton cares. He's somewhere. Finally lets Carter have a little something. Yeah. No, I just thought that was a really nice wrap-up. Because at least if nothing else can, if nothing else can come from this... We can at least get some growth on the part of both Benton and Carter, which I think Benton's being a little bit hard on himself there because I don't know anyone that would necessarily think of, oh, hey, a car crashed into a bridge. That's a suicide attempt. I think that's kind of a big leap. Yeah. I think it's a hindsight 2020 situation mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. But other than that, he wants to be better. And that's an excellent goal for any healthcare provider to have is to be better, to be better at recognizing depression and suicidal ideation factors. Especially within the queer community where they may not have as much experience. Oh, yeah. And then Susan's finally home. We see Chloe taking the turkey out of the oven. Her skis bag boyfriend that she's brought home this time is watching TV. Susan is fretfully calling Div. He's not answering. They find the grossest actors to play Chloe's boyfriends. This dude has the most eclectic, like, known for IMDb I think I've ever come across. Like, so the guy's name's Courtney Gaines. Listen to the list of movies they list as his known fors. The Burbs, so the Tom Hanks and is it Shelley Long, I think, is the other one? Anyway, Tom Hanks uh, movie from the 80s. Then you have Back to the Future. Then you have Children of the Corn. And then Sweet Home Alabama. I, I just thought that was such a straight how to get from the burbs to sweet home Alabama in five moves. Just very weird. But yeah, that is very odd. This is a one off for him. We, we get rid of him after this episode. Good. Then we find out like Susan's like, how long did you cook this Turkey for? Chloe's like only a couple hours. Gross. Susan's like, Idiot. This needs to be for like at least six hours for a Turkey this size. You're dumb. There's so much bacteria on this. Yeah. Teeming with bacteria yeah, is the quote but, she um, uses. But so she's like, okay, let's put this back in the oven. Maybe we can eat by 10. I'll try Div again. That's what she calls. Still no answer from him. We cut to pouring rain, cars honking, Div standing in the middle of the street with his arms wide open, screaming, come on. He is just done. Witnessing that suicide was the last straw. He just wants to get hit by a car. He wants this to be over. And that is it for Dr. Dickhead. We will. So we get two, actually. We get two departures in one episode. Like, we get rid of Langworthy and we are getting rid of Dr. Dickhead. He is never to be seen or I don't even think referred to ever again. Like, I don't think Lewis ever mentions him again, even in passing. I could have sworn there was one more thing, like, where, like, he's at work and he has, like, a. He just breaks. No, I'm pretty sure this is it. I'm pretty sure that's the last time you ever see him. He's only credited for eight episodes, so I don't remember what episode he shows up in, but... Hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is it for him. Because I remember thinking that it was very, like, anticlimactic. Like, they 
they set up that he's going to have this major breakdown and, you know, he's going to, you know, whatever. And this, <laughs> this is that breakdown. Can't get much worse than this, but I don't know. Something about it just feels very like we didn't get the full resolution there. And so you feel like there should be more to the story and there just kind of really isn't. Which one of us bet on episode nine? I think I, I had 11. I think it was Lizzie I because I think I picked the middle of the two of you. So that's right. You yeah. did the price is right. Dick move. <laughs> yeah. And Lizzie called me a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair. That's a pretty bitch move. Yeah. Like a, we've had this discussion. Oh, what a note to end on. So yeah, this was a really heavy episode, but I think overall thematically with what they were working with, they did a really good job pacing it and they did a really good job handling the subject matter as best they could. Yeah, I think it's an important episode, even though it's a bit of a tonal mess at times and it they, they definitely do not get it 100% right. I do feel like it is representative of some progress in that area. Because again, you know, we talked about this at the beginning, trying to view all this in context. Like, this is 1994. The only other sort of examples that we would have at this point would be something akin to a Jerry Springer or even like I thought of another one as we were going through it like something like the crying game where it's treated as like this spectacle sort of thing and like or sleepaway camp yeah like you know I do feel like this represents some amount of progress in trans representation in media like it's not perfect there's a lot of work to be done there's still a lot of work to be done today but I do feel like for 1994, this is a step forward. I think that's fair. I mean, we still have trans actors fighting to be able to play trans roles, and we still have cis actors getting to play those roles. And yeah, we're still seeing that in 2019, but it's gotten better. It's not great. Still have a long way to go, but... I'm just going to say fuck Eddie Redmayne. That's all that's coming <laughs> to my mind right now. All right, well, that about wraps up our episode for today. Thank you all very much for listening. You can find us on Twitter. We are at SetTheToneER. Uh, we are also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SettingTheTonePodcast. And we are at SettingTheTonePodcast on Instagram. You can also support us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash SettingTheTonePodcast. You can help your fellow patrons unlock bonus shows, including a special season recap episode and a monthly bonus show where we talk about whatever's going on for us at that moment. Different movies that we've been watching, different video games we've been playing, just talk about different current events, stuff like that. Our theme music today was provided to us by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. And Daniel, where can folks find you at? They can find me on Instagram at dan.u, that is Y-O-U dot E-L. And they can also find me on Twitter, where I finally remembered the password to my other podcast's Twitter account. You can, All right. f- you can find. I couldn't be bothered to remember my own password, so I'm just using that as my personal account as well. That is at Popular Court Pod, uh, where I do post the new episodes of my other podcast, The Popular Court, where we take a different pop culture topic each week. And put it through a little mock trial. Kind of, uh, I'll dig one up from the backlogs because I'm coming up empty as to what our most recent episode is right now. But um, you can go back in our backlog and listen to that Star Trek Generations episode that we talked about at the top of the show. Really fun look at a movie that had a lot of kind of unrealized potential. So give that one a listen. And Lauren, where can folks find you at? Folks can find me on my personal Twitter at Lobob92345. And I also want to note that um, Andrew Edwards is doing some really great theme music over at the Nerdette Recaps with Peter Sagal podcast for his Dark Materials. 
his homage to that theme has been great and you all should just go listen to Nerdette Recaps because they're amazing and I love them so much. And Peter Sagal is the worst. Doo doo doo. You can also find me on Twitter. I am at Random Gamer. It's G-A-M-3-R. Thank you again, everyone, very much for listening. Please join us again next week for episode 10, which is titled Blizzard, and I am super looking forward to that one. I fucking love the weather episodes, so should have a really good one and a far less traumatic one for you next week. So thank you again and have a great week.